Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Programming note. This episode of Quick to Listen contains references to sexual assault. Last week, the Trump administration carried out its ninth and 10th federal execution of 2020. On Wednesday night, the state executed a 40-year-old man, Brandon Bernard. This is according to the AP. When Bernard was 18, he and four other teenagers abducted and robbed Todd and Stacy Bagley on their way from a Sunday service in Killing, Texas, during which Bernard doused their car with lighter fluid and set it on fire with their bodies in the back trunk. Bernard's situation was unique in that he was 18 at the time he committed the crime. At a press conference before Bernard's death, Bagley's mother read from a prepared statement. Without this process, my family and I would not have the closure we needed to move on in life. She called the killings this senseless act of unnecessary evil. Then she broke down and began speaking off script. The apology and the remorse that was shown to the family and the fact that they regretted their acts at that time helped very much to heal my heart. And I can truly say I forgive them. And this is because Bernard had apologized several days before his death. I can't imagine how they feel about losing their family. And I wish that we could all go back and change it. And I'm sorry for all the pain that I've caused. Bernard's death comes several months after the Justice Department surfaced a proposal to, quote, reintroduce firing squads and electrocutions for federal executions, giving the government more options for administering capital punishment as drugs used in lethal injections become unavailable. And that was from a ProPublica report. It's unclear if the rule will be put into practice, given that President-elect Joe Biden opposes the death penalty. On last Friday, the government executed Alfred Bourgeois, who has an intellectual disability, which should have meant that he should not have been up for the death penalty but Bourgeois' trial lawyers did not present evidence of his intellectual disability to the jury. That made him the 17th person executed in the United States this year and the country's last scheduled execution for 2020. We wanted to discuss the death penalty and wrestle with it a bit. We wanted to talk about accountability, justice, and forgiveness. And we wanted to have that conversation with someone who has straddled many sides of this very complex topic and situation. Today is Wednesday, December 16th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, this was talking about this issue was something that you had mentioned three or four weeks ago, which indicates to me it's something that you follow decently closely and is on your mind. What is your gut check to all of this news? Yeah, I mean, where I had suggested it was 
noting that this is a record low year for executions in the United States because of COVID. A lot of states are, you know, this is a, a process. The way in which we execute people requires a lot of people in a lot of tight rooms. We have seen in the few executions that we have had that there have been COVID coming out of those moments. And so on the state level, executions are, are significantly down this year. But at the same time, you've got federal government, which had had uh, an almost two decades long moratorium on the death penalty. That was lifted this year in 2020. And so we have now executed, like you said in your summary, that there's only been 13 federal executions since 1976. And 10 of those, 10 of those 13 happened in 2020. So you have this dramatic rise and so I should say, you know, that's just three between 1976 and the moratorium, 10 executions in this year on the federal level, on the national level. That's a terrible and interesting to see a juxtaposition, things moving in kind of different directions. But also this proposal from the Justice Department to reintroduce firing squads and the uh, gas chamber and the electric chair, that to me is pretty horrific. Should for a Christian, I think, reignite questions of what do we what do we think about the government? Yeah, can you actually say a little bit more why you find that just like so repulsive? I mean, I, I guess More I than, than injecting people with poison. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we we, we talk about how and Paul talks about you know, the government you know bears the sword, and I think that you know we don't execute people by sword anymore. We we think of you know the way in which we do it as being more modern than a sword. And I think bringing back some of these execution methods that we set aside as being kind of less modern, uh, more a little bit more barbaric, a little bit more cruel and unusual, a little bit more vindictive and vengeful feeling, and more painful, certainly more painful executions. The idea behind the injection, lethal injection, is supposed to be that it is, quote-unquote, peaceful and, uh, quote-unquote, painless. There's some counter-evidence to both of those things. Mm -hmm. But that's the idea anyway. So moving back to execution that would be particularly bloody and more likely painful signals a, a different view of what we think justice requires in an execution and I think should kind of cause us to, to rethink what... <laughs> What is it that we think state has the right to do? I mean, I'm thinking of it, you know, we're doing this a week before Christmas and we were, we really, you, you know, Morgan and I debated a lot about whether we should talk about this, you know, a couple of days before Christmas here. And, you know, there is a connect, you know, in the massacre of the innocents, we're not talking about necessarily innocence here, but I think that the massacre of the innocents, you know, when, when Herod killed the babies under two should also cause us to, to think about that the government's ability to bear the sword and to create laws that, that execute people is not a, a, a limitless okay on, you know, if the government kills somebody, it must be okay. If the government's going to kill someone, it needs to do so in the utmost view of, of justice and mercy and protecting people. I think the question is, is the way in which the death penalty is done in the United States, does it meet those standards? That, to me, is why I think... Yeah, you know, this is not completely at odds with talking about at this time. Morgan, what are your thoughts on all of this? I've had so many different thoughts about the death penalty, probably starting with high school and going to a Catholic high school that was obviously opposed to the death penalty. I, I do feel like it was something that I kind of just took as a fact 
of life or American reality. And so to be in a space where it was being very questioned and challenged has kind of more or less been the space that I've been in since then, where I've been exposed to lots of lots of different arguments and stories where people are making the case that it is very unjust. Some of those are from a procedural sense and some of them are from the actual sense in which the, the act of putting someone to death is very evil and wrong. Ted, you and I have both read Just Mercy, which is by the attorney and founder of Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson. And in it, he talks about, he works with a lot of clients who are folks who are sentenced to death. Yeah, I find it interesting, of course, that he profiles a lot of these folks who he explains how they got in these particular circumstances in the first place. I think one of the things that I've been just really confused about for a very long time is about why someone ends up with getting death or even what you're talking about right now, which is federal executions and not really understanding exactly what those are either. You know, I live in a, sh- in a city that has its fair share of murders, but many of those people, to the extent these cases are solved, are not necessarily sentenced to death. So there's been a capriciousness that has felt extremely uncomfortable. And when you were mentioning these ways in which the federal government may be open to executing people, it does just make me ask the questions that were you asking, which is what are we exactly are we trying to do here or what are we trying to solve? You know, I read this statement from the victim's mother because sometimes I feel like that is what we're trying to solve is to, you know, provide accountability to the people that the victim left behind. But I don't know. And maybe we're not trying to solve that. Maybe we're just trying to punish people. But it does make me want to ask, is this actually accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish? Right. I saw a quote from Brian Stevenson this week after one one of these executions where he said, you know, I think he was referring to bourgeois mental disability and was saying, you know, we are, you know, killing some of the most broken people. There is a victim's advocacy, strong, strong part of this, but also what is our goal for the offenders and what is our goal for the victim? And Yeah, so that's who we've brought on to help talk about some of this. Our guest today is Jean Bishop. Ever since her sister's murder, Jean Bishop has worked as a felony trial attorney in the Cook County Public Defender's Office here in Chicago. She teaches trial advocacy at Northwestern and is a human rights advocate and author. Christianity Today readers may remember well our May 2015 issues profile of Bishop when her book first came out. That profile was written by Morgan Lee. Morgan, you did a good job on that profile. And the book was Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. Now here in 2020, she is out with a new book called Grace from the Rubble, Two Fathers, Road to Reconciliation After the Oklahoma City Bombing. Jean, it's so great to have you with us today, and especially since we had the chance to talk about five years ago. So thanks so much for being here. I'm wondering if we can start with something that is very close and personal to you, which is your sister's death. And in particular, I'm wondering how you kind of understood the idea of justice, specifically in the criminal justice system, before your sister's murder. How did this murder end up changing and challenging it? You know, when my younger sister Nancy died at the age of 25 and, and you know, her husband along with her, Richard, love of her life, she wanted to raise a big family with him and grow old with him. And 
Instead, they were they're shot to death in the basement of their home. And Nancy was three months pregnant at the time with what would have been their first baby. And that staggering event made me realize that my thoughts about the criminal justice system before and what justice meant were wildly wrong. Because to me, justice meant you did this wrong thing, and now we're going to exact this criminal punishment from you that is going to somehow balance the scales, right? That you did this wrong thing, and so the countervailing thing will be to have this punishment, and then you're you're even. But losing my sister and her husband and my little niece or nephew, you know, made me realize that you can't truly balance those scales. You can't bring her life back. You can't bring back all the joy she brought, all the things she could have done, all the things that her her child could have done if it had been able to be born and grown up. It was vaster and deeper than I had ever imagined. After you were processing much of this, you know, you ended up becoming a public defender. What type of spirit and mentality did you have about what justice was when you entered that line of work? I felt that justice was to be a voice for the voiceless. The criminal justice system often is so stacked against the people that I represent, people who don't have a lot of material means, people who often come from areas of poverty, not just of wealth, but of health care, of education, of freedom from discrimination, you know, of over-policing. What I wanted to do was to stand with them, to be the person that would advocate for them no matter what they've done. So you have these different ideas of justice that are highly personal and they're extremely personal. I'm wondering the third element, which is like your faith and how that in turn also shaped how you kind of understood what your work, your calling, and your sense of justice was. My faith has everything to do with my sense of of justice now. I, I, I love, as so many people do, Micah 6, 8, where the prophet asks, you know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? What that means to me is that there is no true justice without mercy and humility. And working in the criminal justice system as a public defender now for you know, 30 years now, this November, I really see the need for that kind of humility of understanding that we often get things wrong. Sometimes people, witnesses make a mistake, police cut corners. Defense lawyers are lazy about investigating something. You've got an overzealous prosecutor, jurors who aren't paying attention. All kinds of things can, can go wrong. And so it takes a humility about the certainty that we have about the justice that we think we're meeting out. And of course, the mercy aspect is to not just have it be about harsh retribution, but to have it be in some way about how do we restore this person? To society, this person who's transgressed against society? How do we bring this person back instead of just throwing them away? Let me ask you a little bit more about that question of what do we think the death penalty is for? Like there is that question, right, of like the difference between caring caring for the, the voiceless. And I'm sure that in a lot of these courtroom systems that there's a lot of people who feel that they are the voiceless. I'm, I'm sure that you probably felt heavily voiceless after your sister had been Mm -hmm. murdered. 
I'm sure that many cases, the people that you have represented as a public defender have felt voiceless. I'm sure that there's a number of witnesses, even even jurors, you know, a number of, you know, who are not supposed to be talking, probably feel that voicelessness. Where does voice kind of come into play here? Like what what is the voice that is being held back? Is it people telling their own story? Is it people, what is it that people need to speak out that they often have muzzled in these kinds of situations? So let's start with the victims. I love that you remembered that myself and my family were family members of victims. And so much of the process was the prosecutors telling us what was going to happen and never asking us, what do you think or or seeking our our input? Mm. And then certainly in court, we were almost kind of like props. We were there to be, here's the grieving victim's family, but we were not to to say anything mm. at all. We were cautioned, don't talk to the press, don't talk to the jurors, don't talk to the family of, of the defendant all the time. I, I mean, I, I was on, we're doing court by Zoom right now during this area of COVID. So what you can all hear at once what's being said from a lawyer to a, a defendant who wants to say something to the court. And the lawyer is always trying to shush him up and say, don't say anything, Mr. Smith. You know, you're being recorded. Everyone can hear you. As a lawyer, you don't want your client to say something that might hurt his case. But you also have this person that just feels so stifled and silenced. There may be something really important that, that he has to say, and he's just not being allowed to say. There are, and as you said, in the in the criminal justice system, the, the people that are judging the case, the judges and jurors, there, there are such strict rules on what they can read, what they can know about, what, what they can say. And so often we're all in our in our kind of individual silos. And this is where the part of the changes that are happening in the criminal justice system that I love most is this notion of restorative justice. Where instead of separating people and silencing people and saying, don't speak to them, you know, that we're actually intentionally trying to gather people, the perpetrator and the victim who's been hurt and the communities they come from and their families and to bring them all together in, in a circle and talk about the wrong, how it can be repaired and how this person can be restored and how the relationships can be restored within the community. It's such a hopeful thing, and it's so consistent with the gospel. One of my favorite stories from the Bible is of Jesus going to this town, and there's this guy who today I'm sure we would call him you know, mentally ill, but he was so out of control that he had to live among the tombs. The villagers wouldn't let him live in the village, and he would bruise himself with stones, and they tried to hold him with chains, and, and nothing would work. And Jesus came and cast out this demon of whatever it was that was tormenting him and causing him to be like this. The villagers all came. They heard what had happened, and they saw this man sitting there calmly, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid, meaning, oh my gosh, what happened here? The man who's cured wants to go with Jesus as he leaves with his disciples and moves on to the next town. And Jesus said to him, no, stay here. And tell of all the mercy that God's done for you. You That message to me is that Jesus wants our restoration in our community. And that's, I think, the the heart of restorative justice. There's that fear, too. There's the awe of of God in his his work. And then there's also, you know, I think about a number of those times when 
God, when Jesus restored people, there's other kinds of fear as well. You know, the healing of the man who was possessed and uh, his demons cast into the pigs, you know, that it outrages and outrages the town. You know, we talked at the top of the show about the decline in state executions due to COVID issues, but then the rise on federal 10 cases or 10 executions this year with a, a, a few more being scheduled for, for January. I am not as familiar. I don't, I don't think our listeners are as familiar. Like, What are some of the differences between the federal death penalty system and the state death penalty system? I assume that there's you know certain crimes that are prosecuted differently on, on those, but what are some of the differences that people should, should, should understand about the federal and the state systems? The federal death penalty applies only to federal crimes. So, for example, Timothy McVeigh, the young man who blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building and killed 168 people, that was a federal crime because it was federal property. And some federal employees died in that. And so there is one federal system for all 50 states. So, so even if you are in a state where your state death penalty has been abolished, like Illinois, there is still a federal death penalty for any federal crime that might happen here. So that's one thing. A state can't completely eradicate the notion of, you know, a crime related to your jurisdiction, you know, ending up with a death penalty because the federal government has said that there's going to be a death penalty in all 50 states. But the different individual states have a right to abolish their own state death penalties and have their own rules for what makes them eligible how it'll be carried out, and so on. The other difference, I think, is that generally speaking, there have been very few federal executions. When Timothy McVeigh was executed in 2001, there had not been a federal death penalty carried out, I believe, in 40 years. He was the first one in 40 years. And when President Obama was in office, there was a long, long hiatus on the federal executions. It was only in the very waning days of the Trump administration that there has been this ratcheting up and this rush to execution, despite many of the victims' family members and many of the jurors who handed down the death penalty decision saying, please don't do this. Knowing what we know now about this particular defendant, we wouldn't have given the death penalty at the time. And yet, you know, they're, they're still being put to death. Jean, I just wanted to get some clarity on this. What like switch was exactly flipped in this past year with regards to the number of federal executions happening? I regret to say this, but I must. The truth of it is that we had a president in office who likes to show strength and I think defines this kind of harsh retribution as strength. I disagree with that, and I think that our Christian faith augurs against that as well. We also had an attorney general that seemed all too eager to carry out the wishes of the president, even though the attorney general is supposed to not represent the president and his wishes, but the people of the United States of America, and they're supposed to be independent in their judgment and their actions. It has turned out to be a lethal combination for the people who have been living peacefully on the federal death row all this time. And there seemed to be no outcry for or need for their deaths at this point after so many years. 
Is there like a bureaucratic procedure that happens too? In other words, like, was there something that there's some, I don't know, button or form that was not being filled out during the Obama administration by the president that then was changed or reversed in this past year? You know, not that I know of. All I know is that it was a, a policy of the Obama administration not to pursue these executions and, and set execution dates. Just as, you know, in our state of Illinois, before we abolished the death penalty, there was a moratorium put on in place by the governor, then uh, Governor George Ryan, that lasted for several years before we finally abolished the death penalty. So one of the things that Ted had mentioned at the top of the show was about this idea that they, they're considering bringing back firing squads. Ted, I think you also mentioned electric chairs. Yeah, correct? electric chairs and, and the gas chamber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're doing that because it's very difficult anymore to get the ingredients that are needed to do lethal injections. One of the manufacturers of chemical that was used in lethal injections previously was based in Italy. And of course, the European Union ages ago abolished the death penalty in all its, its countries, including Italy. And they were outraged that their product was being used to kill human beings. And so they said, we're not you know, selling this to you anymore. That resulted in jurisdictions trying to buy this from places that sold compounds. And there were ghastly effects of that, of people kind of you know, suffocating and having agonizing long deaths and doctors refusing to participate in this and medical associations decrying it because you're basically experimenting with things. And I, I really think they're trying to expand it to get around these sort of restrictions. Jean, have you been in courtrooms where the attorney across from you is is arguing for the death penalty for your client? Yes. Yeah. I was on a team of lawyers that represented a man named Andrew Erdiales. And Mr. Erdiales had killed several people in the state of Illinois and another, you know, even more people in the state of California. He had been a, a United States Marine who was training in Camp Pendleton out there and killed, I think, five women there. And then there were three that were killed in the state of Illinois. He was tried first in Illinois on the two cases that were in Cook County. It was a month-long trial, and the jurors only took an hour to sentence him to death, to decide on death. Wow. And then he was the subject of our you know, moratorium on the death penalty, and then finally the abolition of the death penalty. He was transferred out to California to face trial there. And while in San Quentin, he took his own life. Wow. That is a very intense story. At that point, Jean, do you know what your convictions about the death penalty were? Yes. You know, I had always been against the death penalty from a young age, just on what I would call logical, rational grounds. It's more expensive than housing people for life. It is racist in its application. Not that we kill more black people than white people, but that we kill more people who kill white people than people who kill black people as their underlying crime. It is illogical because you're killing to show that killing is wrong. It doesn't deter crime. That's why the state of Minnesota doesn't have a higher crime rate than the state of Texas. There's no death penalty in Minnesota, never has been. 
and there's a, a robust death penalty in, in the state of Texas, but there's no evidence that there's any deterrent factor. So, and of course, then there's the risk of killing an innocent person. Once you do that, you can't take back your mistake. If you incarcerate somebody wrongly, which happens all the time, you can release them from custody, but you can't restore a life that you've taken. But after Nancy, and you know how that argument would always end, you know, if you're talking in a debate with people, as they'd always say, well, if it was your family member that was killed, if it was your child or your mom or something, you'd want that person dead. And that's the unanswered question, like how, how would you know how you'd feel until that happened? But when Nancy and Richard were killed and their baby was killed, that just even more made me oppose this idea of deliberately taking a human life, anyone's human life. This idea of shedding more blood and digging another grave and creating another grieving family was just the antithesis of what I thought my sister's memorial should be. I truly believe that her memorial should be preventing the kind of violence that took her life, meaning working against gun violence and working against the death penalty, which I think cheapens the human life and perpetuates this idea that killing is a solution to anything. Yeah, I, I was reading, you know, from the Equal Justice Initiative that for every nine people that have been executed in America, one person on death row has been exonerated. And I remember when CT wrote one of its major editorials about the death penalty, that was one of the considerations was not just the wrongful convictions, uh, the, the, the execution of the innocent, but also, yeah, also the racial justice aspect of it. I think that there's a, you know, kind of a theoretical conversation about uh, that is often happen, happens around the death penalty where, you know, does, does the government have a right or slash duty to do some of these things? But then there's that question of, is the way that it is happening in the United States any, any kind of just, is there anything remotely close to justice here? And, you know, I think that, that was the conversation that happened in Illinois initially that, that eventually led to, you know, barring the death penalty here. But initially it was that it was that it is, it is being done unfairly. And then it was the move to, it is, <laughs> there's no way to fix it that would, that would be just. Right. That's exactly what happened that, you know, Governor Ryan established this bipartisan commission, half Democrats, half Republicans who studied it and came up with something like 86 recommendations to fix the death penalty and said that even if you enacted all 86 of these, which we never did, you still can't guarantee that an innocent person wouldn't be killed. And I mean, we had 20 people exonerated from our death row, 50% of our death row, like one out of every two people on our death row was factually innocent. And, and that is just staggering when you think about how, how you're just, you're gambling with with human life. And human life is so precious, whether you're innocent or guilty. I mean, one of the things I love about the story in John 8 about Jesus' direct encounter with the death penalty, it wasn't an innocent person. It was a person that we knew was guilty. It was a woman who was caught in the act of a crime that was punishable by death in that society, in a crime that is still punishable by death in some societies in the world today. But we know that she was guilty. And when they brought her before Jesus and threw her in the dirt and said, the law says we should stone such women, what do you say? And I love that he didn't say she didn't deserve to die. He has said, in essence, that we didn't deserve to kill her, that he not sin among you. You cast the first stone. In other words, you are not perfect and you don't get to end her life. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. 
Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's whereyafrom.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. I, w- I would like to hear more about your time working for, you know, you've been there for several decades working as a public defender and you have been exposed up close to just what really ugly things people do to each other on a pretty excruciating basis. What type of work have you had to do yourself to once again fight for justice in these situations, knowing so many of the complexities? If you're able to speak about any particular cases or clients, I think that would be really helpful here. I had a client named Sanatone Moss when I was working in juvenile. And I wasn't working on the delinquency side of juvenile court. And that's where you're representing teenagers who've, who've been accused of crimes, children who've been accused of crimes. I was working on the abuse and neglect side, and that's where you are assigned to represent parents whose children are being taken away by the state because of either their abuse or neglect, but also because of something called depravity. And depravity means that you have done something so terrible that we cannot trust you to be a parent of a child anymore. and We're going to terminate your parental rights and take this child and place them in a home where they're safe and cared for. And Sanatone Moss was had two children that they were trying to take away on the basis of depravity because he had raped an 11-year-old girl. And this 11-year-old girl, after this horrific incident, went to her mother and told her mom what had happened to her. And the mother took the little girl and went to the police and reported the crime. And Sanatone Moss was arrested for this rape that he committed. When Mr. Moss was in jail. He decided that the solution to this problem of having this little girl and her mother be witnesses against him was to have them killed, which he did. Asked his relatives to kill them. These, this young, innocent woman who'd already been victimized and her distraught mother were stabbed to death in a parking lot and, and killed. 
And so now San Antonio Moss is facing the death penalty. And I was to sit down with him and say, you know, to talk to, with him about what his options are. And the most merciful option for the children to not be put through a long, you know, process of a trial and the uncertainty. The best way to do that would be to just simply voluntarily give up his rights, to sign a termination of parental rights document. My job was to present those options to him, but I also, you know, said to him that he'd done these terrible things in his life. And this is one good thing that he could do, one selfless thing that he could do for his children to help them. And it was hard looking into his eyes and it was hard being even in his presence. The guards were kind of hovering around outside the door, like not wanting me to, you know, to be alone with him because of just the this kind of darkness inside. But there was light there enough for him to do that, to pick up the pen and voluntarily do something that would free his children for a better life. And so even in the worst moments, I've been able to find redemption. Do you think of our justice system as a place that tries its best to hold people accountable? Do you think of it as a place where they're trying to reform people? You know, what do you see as kind of the goal of many of your colleagues and those of, you know, who work in the criminal justice system? And what's the gap between that goal that they work for and how it functions in reality? Yeah, I, what you just said, I think it's both of that. I think we are trying to hold people accountable, but we're also trying to reform people. I mean, one of the things I love about my work, because I'm so blessed, where I work is in this large system broken up into different districts. And in the district where I work, I've never worked with better prosecutors or judges. And we all seem to be kind of working on the same page of like, how do we how do we fix this problem? Like, what's the best outcome, you know, to, to kind of help this person and make sure this doesn't happen again? Sometimes it's a drug addiction and you're trying to, you know, send them to a drug court or into some kind of drug treatment and then a probation where they're continuing to get counseling. Sometimes it's a mental health issue where we try to see does you know, this person needs some kind of help, some medication, and they're evaluated for that. Sometimes it's an issue of housing, of, of homelessness. And so someone is breaking in and trespassing in people's buildings so they don't have a place to stay. And so there's so many things that we have now in our system called problem-solving courts, where there's a veterans court, where there's a drug court, where there's a mental health court. And now we even have a restorative justice court for juveniles in some sections of our city. You know, we can do things hand in hand. We can say... We're going to look at what you're doing. We're going to keep a kind of a tight rein on you, but we're also going to try to help you so that this doesn't happen again. Gina, I was curious about the role mental illness plays in some of these cases. Again, I've read a fair bit from the Equal Justice Initiative on this, where it just talks about the massive you know, mental health experts estimating that at least 20% of people on death row today have a serious mental illness that there, there have at least 44 people with intellectual disability executed before the Supreme Court in 2002 said that we can't execute people with intellectual disabilities. Both as an advocate and lawyer, at the, at the top of the show, we mentioned this most recent federal execution where the executed person, uh, Alfred Bourgeois, had an intellectual disability, but his trial lawyers didn't produce evidence of this at, at his trial. And so that was the basis of kind of a denial of appeal. 
I'm sure that we have a number of listeners who are more supportive of the death penalty who might be skeptical of some of the numbers and claims of intellectual disability, that if if there's a ban on executions of the intellectually disabled, wouldn't it be in the lawyer's interest to argue, to find some some rationale by which one can can say their client is intellectually disabled in some way? Give me a sense of whether it's more likely that lawyers are kind of inflating intellectual disability versus whether you have cases where the trial lawyers should have brought up disabilities and didn't at trial. Uh, There's so much to say about this in this area. And I'll just start with answering your specific question just now, which is about intellectual disability. I mean, there was a, a guy on death row who, when he had his last meal, told the guards that, you know, to save his dessert, he wanted to save his dessert for later after the execution because he wanted to eat it. I mean, he did not even grasp what was going to happen to him, which defies then the idea that you're actually punishing this person. If the whole point is to, you know, to punish them, if they don't even comprehend what's going on, it's utterly bizarre and cruel. This whole issue of mental health is huge. I started out my practice thinking, I think probably about 30% of my clients have some sort of, you know, mental health problem, not necessarily, you know, that completely incapacitates them, but trauma and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and depression and all sorts of things. I have had two clients commit suicide, one very recently, absolutely hard I went to his funeral. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Young man, abused when he was young, twice, once by a male cousin and another, but later by an older male, sent him off into kind of a tailspin of trauma because of a lack of any mental health treatment, you know, for that trauma turned to drugs, which often happens. You're trying to numb your pain, which led to crime because you have to steal to support your addiction unless you have a whole lot of money. And so he was in and out of jail. This wonderful great aunt took him into her home after everybody else had put him out. Uh, and But some, she didn't allow him to use drugs in her home. And so sometimes he would go off and do that and she'd lose track of him. He got rearrested for that. And he just was so despondent about being in the jail that he took his life in the jail not too long ago. What I've learned from over the years is that really it's more over 50% of my clients that have some sort of mental disorder and mostly because of trauma. My clients have so much in common in terms of just some terrible thing that happened to them when they were young that kind of marked their path for the rest of their life because they didn't get the help they needed. And somebody put it really succinctly and beautifully that hurt people hurt people. Jean, I think one of the the things that feels still vexing to me, and Ted had mentioned that I talked about at the beginning of the show, is about how to best honor and do justice for victims and their families. And I think culturally, we have a culture in which really harsh sentences seem to be the ways that's being often defined. So you'd mentioned restorative justice a couple minutes ago, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how that can often play out and be one way that some of 
the victims' families are honored, but also how to balance this when you do have victims' families that are really looking for something that does feel very tough and seems like a real punishment and that the best way to go about it is to be as harsh as possible. You know, I was asked to take part in a amicus brief before the U.S. Supreme Court on a case involving juvenile life without parole sentences and talk about a harsh sentence, what that says to a young person who was a child when they committed their crime. We are throwing you away forever. You will never get out of prison. You can be as rehabilitated and remorseful and safe to release in society as you want to be. We will never let you out. We're never even going to take a second look at you. Without parole means there's not going to be a parole hearing where we look and say, how are you doing? Can we let you out now safely into society? That That's never going to happen. We're, we're simply going to decide right now at this young age that we're throwing you away forever. What I said in this brief was that there's two ways of looking at, you know, you've taken away the life of my loved one forever. And one is to say, and now we're going to throw your life away forever. And that's how I'm going to honor the life of my loved one. But there's a better way of honoring the life of, of your loved one. And that is to say, we're going to restore you. We are going to bring you back. And we are going to expect of you and ask from you that every bit of good that our loved one who is dead at your hand can no longer do, we now want you to do. We want you to live the kind of honorable, productive, upstanding life that they were living. We want you to contribute in ways that they never will be able to because of your act. And we want you to know that this is your obligation, that this is the moral obligation that attached to you when you wiped this life off the face of the earth. And that is the way of of restorative justice. That's the way of redemption instead of retribution, of life instead of death, right? So as we wrap our conversation, I did want to ask just about the pandemic, since I've Observed, obviously, that has had huge ramifications for folks both in jail and in prison and for people's ability to go to trial. Can you speak about how your work has been affected and how your clients have been affected by this? Oh, boy. I'm so glad you asked that because I feel like this pandemic has done something terrible to people in all sorts of different work professions. It's laid off gig workers it's decimated people who are busboys, chefs, you know, restaurant servers, movie theater ticket takers. I mean, all my friends from the, the professional choir that I sing in that are professional singers, it, it's made it so tough for them. On the other hand, there are some professions where it's just increased our workload exponentially to the point of breaking and we're thinking of doctors and nurses and you know essential workers but i have to tell you my work has never been as busy or as stressful our courts closed down for months between march and july basically everything just got an automatic continuance and so nothing was done no old cases went out by some kind of mutual disposition either by dropping the case or having someone plead to probation or something Everything just simply piled up as new cases were being added. And on top of that, the top priority of my office, of course, was to try to get every single client that we had out of custody in the jail, because at one point, the Cook County Jail was the number one hotspot for COVID in the country. You know, still 
obviously a place where my clients are under great threat of illness. So many clients of mine are never brought to court, even in front of a Zoom, because they're in isolation or quarantine at the jail because of COVID. And many people have died, and not just clients. The last time I went to Division 11 of the Cook County Jail to see a client, I asked the lady behind the desk, the sheriff, you know, how are you doing today? And she said, not good. I'm really sad. One of my fellow sheriffs here just died of COVID at the age of 31, 31 years old, had just died like the day before from COVID after being sick for only a week. I need to try to get my clients out of there. So that meant that my workload was doubled in addition to all these you know, new cases and old cases because we were trying to file motions for bond reduction on every single person that you know, we had. And that's something that, that just continues. It's been incredibly challenging and I, I want to be better at what I'm doing. And, and it's, it's so heartbreaking when my clients call me from the jail, which I do all the time. My phone, you know, rings through to my cell phone because we're not working out of the offices all the time. And my phone is ringing night and day and weekends and mornings and evenings of people who are panicked and terrified and ask me to help them. I go down to Lake Michigan to a beach about six blocks away every morning, rain or shine, frost or, or warmth. And I just pray to God to help me. For those of our listeners who want to join you in your prayers, would you want to name two or three things that you would really ask them to pray for during the season? Oh my God, that brings tears to my eyes. I want them to pray for the prisoner. I want them to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, that when you visit the prisoner, you're visiting me. These are the most terrified, lonely people on the planet is prisoners. And every time I hear about the, where the COVID vaccine will go first to healthcare workers and then to nursing homes and then to essential, you know, people like in the food production line and so on. And I keep wondering where the prisoners are in that because these are the most people on earth. These are people who are locked in, in a room where you can't get out of that room unless someone with a key comes on the other side and opens that door for you. That's what it means to be a prisoner. And I think that's why Jesus had a special heart for them. So that would be number one. You know, number two, I, I would just ask them to pray for all the people who have been separated by distance from their loved ones, from, you know, the things that they love to do and all the losses that we suffer. Just, just pray for strength and healing for them. Thank you so much, Jean, for sharing all of that with us. For people who have feedback for this episode, please send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcast. And continue to write and share your thoughts. We really love and treasure what all of you have had to say over the course of this year. So thank you for being so engaged with us. Now is the time of the show we call Slow to Speak, which is when we hear from all of you listeners out there. Ted, any letters this week? We did get a couple letters, including one about last week's episode on The Chosen. Dear Mr. Olson and Ms. Lee, I listened to your latest podcast with the showrunner for The Chosen. I couldn't finish it, though, after you got to the part where he said that Jesus couldn't really be a protagonist in a drama because he has no story arc because he's perfect. Ay, ay, ay. And you were all wondering a couple of weeks ago why people don't think too much of heaven. Well, sure, heaven's boring because it's 
perfect. Everyone will be perfect. There will be no story arc. Now, I get that, possibly. The movie form may not be constitutionally fit to communicate the person of Jesus, at least in the hands of showrunners and conventional directors, who, in fact, have to worry about scripts with story arcs and so forth. There is no such thing in film vocabulary as a passive hero. Yet, something is vitally wrong in the average Christian's imagination. Nobody would follow and dedicate their lives to a, quote, perfect or flat passive hero. But everywhere Jesus went, he electrified the place. When he leaves, people say, I don't understand everything he just said, but I want to be like him. I want to be around him. I remember Dallas Willard saying once that God was the most fascinating thing imaginable. I tried that out in a Bible study once, saying that God was fascinating. One of the women reacted and said flat out that she didn't think that God was fascinating. She couldn't see that. She, quote, loved God and so forth. But you have to wonder what it means to love a God or a Jesus who isn't all that interesting. Other than that, this episode of the podcast, which I listen to regularly, had a nice story arc to it. <laughs> Regards, Steve Zelt. Very, very amusing, Steve. And uh, yeah, no, point point taken, point taken. I think that's interesting. And for people who did not listen to last week's episode, we were talking about The Chosen, which is a TV series about Christ, predominantly told through the eyes of his followers. So that is kind of the context that was coming in. All right. And so what do you and think? Indeed, and indeed, the Jesus in the uh, Chosen has has a remarkable st- story arc that is both the gospel story arc and has uh, episodic story arcs. It's, it's, it's well done. But anyway. What did you think of that comment, though? Because I remember when he said that last week, I, w- I thought that was an interesting remark to make. And by that, I mean our guest, the showrunner, Dallas Jenkins. It did uh, echo something that I remember hearing from a comic writer from DC Comics who said how much he hates kind of writing for Superman because Superman is so kind of uninteresting because you can never actually uh, challenge the guy. But Jesus is different, obviously. Jesus is uh, very much the non-Superman character who is killed by his adversaries, but then triumphs and and is resurrected. But anyway... (laughs) I think for me, you know, one of the things I push a lot here at CT is the element of surprise and how even when we are communicating timeless truths, we are looking for that surprise element. So I think if, yeah, if you're making a Bible movie, you are kind of pushing for that idea of surprise and not just kind of character arcs who grow and change. I think that what Dallas was getting at was this question of, can you show Jesus learning? And if you show Jesus learning, you have to show him making mistakes once you start showing Jesus making mistakes, then then you're in some fraught territory, some fraught theological territory. So, you know, I get it, but I do appreciate Steve's, Steve bringing it back to the the question of heaven that, you know, just, <laughs> just because there's no sin or necessarily tension, that it's not necessarily going to be boring. I will be interested to see if, if there's tension in heaven. That will be an interesting question. Yeah, not to go all theological on this really great letter, but you can make mistakes, right, without sinning mishear well, what people say you're in the you're in that fraught fraught thing yes i i mean yes i think i think most people would say so like if jesus was a carpenter did he ever hit his thumb with a hammer right or also just like but misunderstanding people i mean i don't think that a coworker is sinning against me because they didn't understand an email i might be annoyed at them but <laughs> uh, i don't know you know we uh, all right we're doing a, we're going to have to do a part podcast on homardiology and the nature of sin let's do it that would be awesome Okay, I actually don't know what homardiology is. Yeah, the theology of sin, but yeah, fine. Great. All right, I'm going to read a letter from Marsha, who lives in Chester, New Jersey. I've offered the suggestion before, but still think it's worthwhile. 
At the beginning of the podcast, the host introduced the guest speaker and his or her credentials and relevancy to the topic at hand. It would be helpful to periodically reintroduce the person throughout the podcast so that the listener can more fully appreciate the guest contributions or simply be reminded of who this person is. I enjoy the podcast and have recommended it to many of my Assembly of God family and friends. Marsha, I'm sorry that we have not <laughs> heeded your feedback. And I agree. And I hope that we actually do something this time. I know it is in my power to do it, but when I say that, I mean, for thinking specifically about 2021 and the design of the show, we can intentionally incorporate these suggestions that you have. Thank you for writing us again <laughs> to say that. Yes. We're professionals here. We know what we're doing, except that, yeah, we do forget to have good breaks for the uh, sponsor comments and those kinds of things. Yeah. We get too drawn into these conversations and we hope that you do too. We don't have to deal with the uh, mid-roll, as they say, but, but you do. So we'll tr try to keep that in mind. All right. So again, if you have feedback, send it to us. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, do you have something this week? I do. This week was a, had its hard moments in that I think we're all zoomed out. I had some fairly intense Zoom meetings this last week, but and then I would go home. You know, I'd go home. I, you know, I am I am home, but you know, I would make dinner and then I'd have to pop back on Zoom for a number of and kind of year end church vestry meetings in my church. We call a church board a vestry. So in one sense, it's like, wow, another two-hour Zoom call, two nights in a week. And you know what? It was pretty great. I mean, you know, one of these was a budget meeting. One of these was just a, a regular kind of business meeting. Morgan, I'm sure you're in the same boat. You know, Jeannie probably can identify. We deal with really dysfunctional churches a lot. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, there's, there's so many more terrible stories than CT reports. We mm -hmm. leave so much on the floor. We leave so much. Just, I mean, we hear a lot of horrible stories. You know, a lot of what we're trying to do at CT is to help help churches be healthier and that, and that kind of thing. We do hear good stories too. But it is so awesome then to be in a gathering where not, people don't always agree all the time, but it is just where there is a real unity of spirit and a love of each other and a love for the church and a love for God's people has been wonderful. I'm, I'm rotating off this year and I am going to miss it because it's almost like a small group. And it's, it's, we're getting stuff done, but it's almost like a, you know, church small wow. group, even in the kind of budget where you realize, you know, the decisions you make on a budget are decisions for, you know, the life of God's people acting in a, you know, acting as, kind of God's main way of working in the world through his his local church. And you're like, this is pretty great. You know, we, we've been lucky that we're not kind of one of these churches that's on the, had a horrible, horrible year. We've had a good year. You know, there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of churches that can't rejoice like we do in good times, but I do want to rejoice that we, you know, <laughs> we have a functional church that's doing well and I'm so grateful for it. And that has been my precious moment every time I've had one of these church vestry meeting. So that's, that's my precious moment this week. Morgan, what, how about you? So this was my last week in Chicago. So I guess one of my precious moments is my last Chicago adventure. And this one was great. I went down to Pullman, Roseland neighborhood in Chicago to a place called Old Fashioned Donuts and <laughs> ate the most delicious glazed donuts I've ever eaten 
and the most delicious apple fritter I've ever eaten and the most delicious cinnamon roll I've ever eaten. And you can watch them make them. <laughs> in the same in the same trip, Morgan? Yes. I yes. love it. I love we, it. You're so much younger than I am. <laughs> Split. <laughs> I stopped being able to do that decades ago. <laughs> it was so good. It was really awesome. And then we walked to the historic Pullman area, which just to give people a very brief history lesson, it's the scene of a huge labor rights movement in the 1890s. Go Google it and look it up. Yeah. One of the early company towns right there. And yeah, some of the company town houses still exist. You can see them. They're in the process of making it into a big national monument slash park. So got to see some more of Chicago history. I'd been down there five years ago, but saw more of it this time. And I, then I, I talked about Pullman a lot in my Disney World, you know, Disney Worker Church article that I ran uh, a year ago. We will link to it. If people are intrigued by Disney's connection to this donut trip. But then on the way back, long story short is we're going to have to wait for the bus for a really long time to take the train. And so we decided to take scooters because there's electric scooters everywhere. And of course, everyone's fingers froze because it's really cold when you're going 12 miles an hour and it's like 30 degrees outside. (laughs) So and it's getting dark at the same time. And you have to squeeze a button. You have to squeeze a button. And my friend was riding on the back of the scooter with me, which added another level of drama. So it was a very dramatic ending to what was started out as very like innocuous, just sugary day. But it was great because now I will have a great story for my last weekend here. So I don't know. My precious moment is eating delicious donuts, being with friends that will do things only for me. (laughs) Probably wouldn't have done them by themselves, but I'm thankful for that. And people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Jean, over to you. My joy has been coming every morning. I wake up super early because my teenage son, he's a junior in high school, has an early bird class, so he has to wake up at 6. So I get up at 6 with him, and after I make him breakfast, I go out with the dog, and I walk six blocks to this beautiful beach, and there's a pier goes out into the water, and every day is different. Some days the waves are just tempestuous and just huge and they're crashing on the shore and the sky is gray and billowing clouds. Someday the water is just turquoise and still as glass and the sun is shining and the sky is bright and there'll be like a single lone bird just flying overhead or one leaf falling to the ground. Every day's color. Some days God's an artist. Someday God is mad, you know. Someday it's just utter peace. But it's so breathtaking to see creation, to see how much bigger God is than my one life or my small, you know, problems or things that I'm fretting about. And I'm just flooded with gratitude. And no matter what happens the rest of the day, there's always that moment of jewelry, of centering, of awe. You know, one of my favorite writers is in Lamont. She used to say that there's basically just two prayers, which is thank you, thank you, thank you, and help me, help me, help me. All right. But then she added a third prayer, which is wow. So going to the beach in the morning is kind of my all three, but mostly the wow. Thanks for sharing that, Jean. My church, when we do prayer, they have, that's one of our categories as well. Oh, so. I love that. That's great. <laughs> now I know the inspiration for it. Uh, if people wanted to follow you on 
social media or your uh, website. We, we mentioned uh, earlier your new book, Grace and the Rebel, but where else can people find you? So yes, on my website, jeanbishop.com, and you can get on links there to buy my book, Grace from the Rubble. It's a lovely story of two fathers on opposite sides of this tragedy of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I just love the story of these two men. It's just such a great story of, of redemption and hope, true story. I'm also on Twitter at Jean Bishop, or you can find me on Facebook. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really powerful to hear you speak about your work and how you've worked through some very complex issues. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so very much. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is by Boon Shola and Yvonne Sue, and the music is by Sweeps. Thank you, everyone, who sent us feedback. You can do so about particular episodes at podcast at christianity.com or if you have more general comments. Also, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us feedback there. We will see you all next week.